0: By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Do you remember Cain's question from the beginning of the Bible? After it all goes down and there's a lot to say about Cain, my favorite part of the story is how merciful God is. God continues to pursue Cain, but it's a challenging story. Do you remember his question? Am I my brother's keeper? It's not a wild exaggeration to say, or even an exaggeration to say, a large portion of the reason the whole New Testament exists is to answer Cain's question for us. And the answer is, yes. New New Testament has a lot of purposes. The incarnation of Jesus, the story of the New Testament, the formation, or excuse me, the story of the early church, the formation of the churches that made up the early church, the letters to them, like the one we're reading here. And every book in its own fashion, answers that question. Because of the love of Christ given to us, you are your brother's keeper. Some of these words and phrases and verses are taken out of context um, all the time for interesting purposes. But we're better readers than that, right? We understand that John is, is writing sermonically more so than trying to clear up theological questions. So when he says when the world hates you, I think the way most of us experience that is when the world doesn't understand you, doesn't care to understand you. I told this story before um, about sinning against a referee in basketball. His name was Terrell. I was a jerk to him. And the next week, I wanted him to forgive me. He is not a follower of Jesus. And he's a really nice guy, and he likes me. At least he did then. And he's like, I know that's not who you are, and I, I like tried to push through a little bit. You, do you guys ever do that? You know, you want to have a certain conversation and the other person doesn't want to have that conversation, and you try to press into it a little bit, and I was like, I wanted to use the Christian language. He's like, no, 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 no. You're fine. I know that's not who you are. And I'm like, just let it go. Just let it go. I think that's actually what John was getting at. There are things that Christians do and believe that the world not only doesn't understand but doesn't care to understand. There are times that Christians are hated, 100%. But for most of us living here, the way that hatred looks, I think, is indifference. Are you generous? John talks about that a little bit here, and, he's going, and I'm going to reference that in a minute when I get to that verse. Right now I'm looking at verses 11 through 15. Sometimes our generosity is going to look weird to the world and people won't even want to understand. Sometimes we're going to care for the other people of this particular spiritual family, and our own families won't like that. And even if our families are followers of Jesus, sometimes they won't appreciate it. Right? Has that happened with you? One of the things that was convicting to me as I prepared this message is wondering what What would any of my neighbors say, meaning my family members or people live on Hedgehog that I know, people that I interact with enough at restaurants and stores in town that they know who I am, what do they think of all of you based upon how I talk about my church? And it's convicting because I say a lot of positive things about the church. I love the church, but I say negative things, too. And when John is reminding them to love one another, that includes, how do we talk about one another? That doesn't mean be dishonest, like if you don't feel happy about the people, don't, you don't need to pretend like you are. But we still have an opportunity to reflect the true beauty of the church, even in all of its messiness, to those outside of the church and to those within the church. whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John was there when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus talked a lot in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm referencing specifically Matthew 5. Motive, it's not only what we say and do, it's why we say and do what we do. This is John's version of that. Is he speaking theologically about whether there are murderers in heaven, or is he speaking sermonically to remind us that our love matters? It matters internally and externally. Receivable care for one another matters, and it matters where it's coming from. Jesus talked a lot about motive in Matthew 5, and John heard that, and he's riffing on it in his own fashion. I think my favorite book that C.S. Lewis ever wrote is called The Great Divorce. It's not about divorce. It's about a a group of people that take a bus from hell to heaven. Super interesting. I was in New York City a couple years ago, and by a couple, I mean five or six. I need to stop saying a couple. It literally means two. (laughs) About five or six years ago, I was in New York City, and I watched a one-man version of The Great Divorce acted on stage. It was incredible. And afterwards, the director took questions. And in The Great Divorce, someone from hell is talking to someone who's in heaven who is a murderer. And I thought the director was exquisite in the way that he dealt with this. A woman asked the question, she said, there's a murderer in heaven. It was very clear that this bothered her. And uh, the director, his name's Max McLean, goes, yeah. Interesting that Lewis would do that, isn't it? And he just let it be. I was so impressed. I wanted to talk. I'm like, I'm a pastor. I'll explain. I didn't do that, because I I know better. John is actually making a similar point to C.S. Lewis in a roundabout sort of way by encouraging us, with the strongest possible language available to him, to actually care for one another in both motive and action. Which is really encouraging, right? That we actually have some control over our motives. Some days it doesn't feel like I have tremendous control over those things. Love one another, which is John's point from chapter 1, verse 5. Because God is light, and in him there is no darkness. No, no darkness at all. Because of that, we love him and one another with our actions. And of course, John begins with the gospel. By this, we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is how I know that John is speaking metaphorically and sermonically, because you're not supposed to literally lay down your life for someone else, unless, except in extremely. Extreme and unusual circumstances He means it metaphorically In the same way that he means We should walk like Christ He doesn't mean try to walk on water He means learn to love well Like Jesus did And then he immediately jumps into your stuff Like your actual stuff Your watches and cars and finances But if anyone has the world's good And sees his brother in need Yet closes his heart against him How does God's love abide in Him. This is basic Christianity that the world will not esteem or care for, which is the way the world hates. Your stuff, and mine, exists for the good—for the glory of God and the good of one another. And I think most of you know that, and that's why you give to the church, and that's why you sometimes serve, and sometimes you serve individually, not through the church. One of the one of my favorite ministries of the church is called Build and Repair. Straight out of First Timothy, and the point that John's making, it's a ministry that cares for those that need a little bit of extra help. And similar to build and repair are deacons. Coming out of Acts six, deacons are, are mentors of mercy within the church who both care for one another and teach us and remind us to care for one another in our actual needs right John's really quick in making this point in verse 17 because he knows they already know it but he wants to remind them he's a good preacher your stuff is to glorify God and serve one another and you get to enjoy it and the irony is you enjoy your stuff more when it goes in that order And then he makes a point that all of us know little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Camp I worked at uh, in college, the directors were very fond of a poem called I'd Rather See a Sermon Than Hear One Any Day. The point was caring for one another actually is far more profound than telling someone that we care about them. Of course, John would not accept the false dichotomy of telling someone that we care about them when we do, but he's reminding us to actually show up for one another. Oftentimes, love means showing up, doesn't it? When our friends ask us to, and we can't always do it, we can't make it to every wedding, funeral, and graduation, but we go when we can. When our friends are in pain, we find ways to sit with them. Sometimes love is correction Being willing and able to confront one another when we're wrong Sometimes love is actual help When I was in my 20s, I loved it when people wanted help moving Because I knew that it was help that they would appreciate and receive It had a beginning and an end time And like, okay, that's actual help Now I'm in my 40s, hurts my back a little bit more to help, but I'm still happy to do it. Just got to wake up all the muscles before I do it. John is reminding these people, probably think, the seven churches of Revelation, is probably his intended audience because he also wrote the Revelation, and he's reminding them to show up for one another. Seems basic. I hope that it feels basic to you. You're like, I know this. I know that love is showing up. Good. Love one another with our action, which actually assures our hearts. I'm looking now at verses 19 through 24. One of the most regular questions Christians ask me and one another and the Lord is, how do we sense the assurance of God's promises? That he abides in us, that we get to be with him forever. One of the ways, perhaps counterintuitive, is to actually love God the spiritual family given to you. So the point that John's making in verses 19 through 24 is don't hesitate to love one another. That's the point. And in so doing, in resisting the hesitation to love one another, we become increasingly assured of the love of God. And sometimes we don't know how to love. You have had friends that have gone through incredibly painful things and you wanted to call and you didn't call because you didn't know what to say, right? Me too. John's point is still make the call. Better to say something imperfect or even accidentally harmful in love and then and then repair it later than to not call. I missed an opportunity to call this week. It's a friend of a friend, but I could still I, got, I can make five minutes for that. This guy doesn't ever stay on the phone longer than that. And I wasn't positive what to say, because he's not the one that told me. The other friend's the one that told me. And so I hesitated. And John's saying, don't hesitate. Go ahead and show up for the neighbors that God has put into your life. And if you find the right words, great. And if you don't, that's okay too. And there are some times that we hesitate because of wisdom. There are, some, there are times that we're not sure about reaching out to a family member or to an old neighbor because there are things that are unresolved with them. That's not what I'm talking about. But I do think there's somebody that you could move towards this week and you're gonna be tempted to hesitate because maybe the reasons I mentioned, maybe because of wisdom, maybe other reasons, just time. We don't have time to call all the people. But I think there's someone you can reach out to and care for a little bit. And I want you to hear John, because this is his point, saying, go for it. And if you get the words wrong, God can sort sort all that out. God is greater than your heart. Verse 22 is another one that we love to take out of context. And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus—no, not this. Oh, I'm reading verse 23, sorry—the glare. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Is John saying that if you ask God for a Tesla, he's going to give you one? No. He's sermonically saying, as your very being is grown up and matured in the Holy Spirit— this is the fruit of the Spirit. This is 1 Corinthians 13. This is Psalm 1. As you're grown up as a follower of God, do you realize your asks, your requests to Him, become more and more God honoring, Scripture informed, and wise? And of course, He was already probably giving you those things, and He'll give them to you in increasing measure. I hope that your prayers are full of asks, both mature and immature. We love to end our prayers with, but not my will, yours. And there's, there's a strength to that and a maturity to that. We're remembering that he's sovereign and good and he knows our needs better than we know. Jesus also spent a lot of energy pressuring us to ask him and ask boldly. And when you get it wrong, when you ask for something immature or something that would ultimately harm you, what does God do? He sorts that out. He doesn't, he's not tricked. Shoot, I did not mean to answer that request. That's never what happens. John is sermonically reminding us to ask boldly and trust that he'll sort those things out as he grows us up in love and wisdom and in maturity. In verse 23 and 24, John again uses one of his favorite words because it was one of Jesus' favorite words, abide Friends, we have the opportunity daily to abide in him. Abiding is a constant response of our whole being to who God is. It affects how we drive and how angry people can make us. It affects how generous we are. It affects our words. When we get our words wrong, it reminds us to repent, ask for forgiveness and then change, which is what Christians do. It's a constant thankfulness that Jesus indeed gave his life that we might abide in him and with him forever. Abiding gives us guidance and settles our heart. And I think you know that. That's why you're here. So this is supposed to encourage you. Most of you, I think, spend time with the Lord daily and you do so because it's such great benefit to you. And that's part of Abiding. Love one another with action which assures our hearts. As we test the spirits, what does that mean? Does it mean like interviewing demons? It doesn't not mean that, but it's bigger than that. John is using the word spirits in a large way. It's like the reverse of God did not give us a spirit of Right, some of you know that scriptures that scripture. We test everything, friends. Have you ever had an emotion that was disproportionate? It's not just me. that's great. We test that. Have you ever had a belief, a theological belief, that needed to be either undone or reformed? I have. That's why I read Herman Boving so much. Some of you bought that book and you're like, this is not for me. And others of you like it because I've been mentioning it lately. The reason I read that, the reason I go back and read our Confession of Faith again and other Confessions of Faith is I long to understand these words. So I'm testing my beliefs. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Lots of really loving people. When I was nine years old, Oral Roberts told us that if he didn't give, if he didn't receive a certain amount of money for his cancer center, he was, God was going to kill him. I know I've told this story before, but th- that's the culture I grew up in. Um, and I remember being conflicted as a nine-year-old. I'm like, I'm glad he's raising money for cancer. but That doesn't sound like God. <laughs> there are beliefs that we have that need correction. There are emotions that we have that can be disproportionate and can guide us to the wrong place in a relationship or in our own mind. And we get to test all of those things. I think the, the closest equivalent in English to the point that um, John is making, he's using the word pneuma, is influences. We test all of our influences to see if they line up with Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh to reconcile us to God and then teach us how to live the with God life, even in this cursed and broken world. That's what John is saying, and they remembered him preaching on it, and so this was just inspiring to them. They understood it. Evangelicalism, which we are part of because we believe that it is good to tell people about Jesus. There are some threads within it that get things wrong. One that that I had to, uh, there was a spirit that I tested in my mid 20s as I began to read and experience reform theology. Is I believed that evangelism was better than other Christian action. Have you ever heard this or believed it? it? People don't ever say it that way. But the way I see it play out is it matters more to evangelize than to be a good employee. That's so unbiblical. They both matter. First of all, it's a false dichotomy, so you students of logic were already ahead of me in that. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. That's actually the opposite of grace, if you think about it, if you really unpack it. Now what people mean when they say it is, you can do it, you can get through this. Of course God gives you more than you can handle, because it's for him to handle right? Because he's God and we're not. This is me testing the spirits. Hopefully this is you testing the spirits. To test, we must understand this book. We must be willing to be in conversation with other people about this book. We must be in prayer. And we must consider our influences and what they have convinced us of. I think when we, when we don't, when we choose not to converse with our friends and read and even study this book, it's like trying to build a house with a screwdriver, because we're just unwilling to go get the drill from the other room. I don't know how good of a metaphor that is. I really liked it on Tuesday when I was working on the sermon. We're framing. Every 18 inches goes a two-by-four. And instead of studying this book and allowing it to read us and teach us about life, With God, we're just pushing the screwdriver in. We're just going to do it ourselves. We're going to learn everything because we're pretty smart and capable. And the drill's right over there. I'll stop with the analogy because it's an imperfect analogy. Friends, we have an opportunity, and you're doing it right now by participating in corporate worship, by praying together, by hearing the word read, by singing our theology. We sang much of the Nicene Creed this morning lovely. Your voices really sounded lovely too. I'm a little biased because the pandemic wore me out, but your voices sounded lovely. And what happens is our hearts are assured. God is honored, and we're grown up a little bit in love. That's John's point. Love one another with actions and allow your heart to be assured of his love for you as we continually test all the influences in our life. Would you pray with me? Father, we long to abide in you. We long for our thoughts and very being and emotions to be centered upon you so profoundly that our hearts are at rest and that our actions are loving towards you and neighbor. We know we won't achieve this perfectly, this side of heaven, and yet we know we have your Holy Spirit. Help us, Jesus, to lean on your Holy Spirit, because you loved us so much. We can imagine no other life but one of constantly abiding in you. Amen.